The talk tonight is about the inevitability of groundlessness and the inevitability of love. When I um, first started teaching here in 1981, uh, a friend of mine visited, and uh, he was also a very good friend of Joseph's, and we went into his room, and uh, the three of us hadn't been together for a while. And Joseph had on his altar a picture of Menindraji and Deepama. Um, and this friend of ours looked at the picture and got just, just oozing with devotion and love and passion. And um, Joseph and I were just standing there looking at the picture. And then this friend <laughs> started saying, oh, little detail. He had just finished you know, years and years of psychiatric training to be a clinical psychologist and you know, just went through all those hoops that you go through to study in that way. So he was a, a psychiatrist as well as a cl clinical psychologist. So he's looking at this picture, and we're looking at it. And he said, you know, when I see that picture of Manindra and Deepama, I see a brother and a sister. And then <laughs> Joseph and I are looking at each other, and then he's like, he gets more passionate. And he said, and sometimes when I look at that picture, I see a mother and a son. You know, and Joseph and I are sort of looking at each other. <laughs> and then he's like, you know, but you know, sometimes I see a student and his teacher, or if you know the stories, you know. I see a student and a teacher reversed because uh, Deepama was uh, Manindra's uh, student and then <laughs> kind of went along further than Manindra. And so, you know, he just was going on and on and just more and more passion and effusion. And then Joseph and I looked at each other for a final time. And Joseph said very simply, you know, that's funny. When I look at that picture, I just see Manindra and Deepama. <laughs> it's like, it was so, I mean, this guy was just kind of, you know, it was just like this drop, you know, and it was just like very two ways of seeing something. You know, one was much more through the world of relationship, through psychology, through love, and the other was just, I just see these picture, this picture. You know, I mean, just really different. And so tonight I want to talk about valuing both perspectives. Valuing the perspective of love and valuing the perspective of wisdom or emptiness. A great teacher from um, India, Srinazargadatta Maharaj, uh, said, Love tells me I'm everything and wisdom tells me I'm nothing and between the two, my life flows. Can we value both? And if we look at our own heart, you know, we tend to see that we have a tendency toward one of these or the other of these. And practice, hopefully, over time, we start learning to um, equally value these two perspectives of truth. 
Love tells me I'm everything. This is a practice of um, interconnectedness. And for example, in the loving-kindness practice, it's a, a concentration practice, meaning that we're repressing everything but this concentration on love. If a knee pain happens, we ignore it. We come back to love. If a sound happens, we ignore it. We come back to love. If fear or hatred arises, we ignore it. We come back to this loving kindness or love. Uh, and it's, it's, there's a happiness of seclusion in that. And also when we start breaking down the barriers between ourself and ourself or ourself and another or all beings, there's a dropping into the truth of interconnectedness. So we're not making anything happen in the practice of loving-kindness or in our understanding of love. It's that, that there's this inevitability of love. It's, it's always here. That, that's a truth, that we are not separate. We want that experience so much. We want that experience of flowing into the universe and losing our sense of a separate self. We tend to like this truth often more than, you know, wisdom tells me I'm nothing. You know, generally isn't something we just, you know, go, yippee. You know, love tells me I'm very everything. It makes sense. You know, we like it. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Usually there's that, ooh, you know. Of course, if you're the type that likes wisdom and <laughs> tells me I'm nothing, then love tells me I'm everything sounds like New Age schmaltz, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, it just depends on what type you are. So it's just, again, to kind of get a sense of where you stand by how you react to this, these statements. Between the two, my life flows means that we have perfected this sense of valuing both, understanding that both are true, both are happening every moment. Groundlessness is happening every moment, and love is happening every moment. So wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Uh, it's a very different practice, uh, mindfulness practice, from the metta practice, in that we're developing momentary concentration. We're focusing on life as it's changing. And so we're, we're tuning into staccato rather than this union with one thing. We're noticing this extraordinary change, sight, sounds, thoughts, emotions. It's like this incredible um, mindfulness that can just be with this flowing change. Uh, and this is where insight into dukkha, unreliability, insecurity comes, insight into change, insight into the insubstantialness of what we call me, or I, or you. So we don't always like the insight <laughs> that there's no separate self because it's all empty and insubstantial and void. And some people like that. They like it better. 
The phrase, between the two my life flows, is so important because we start to get a sense that these practices can be very different when we first start them especially. But I think that we start to see that it's the wisdom or the understanding that will really purify the love. It's understanding that helps us to break the barriers. And also that love purifies the understanding, meaning understanding purifying love, we can see how easily love becomes attachment. You know, we'll think we have this unconditional love, say of ourselves, you know, where we'll just be sitting there and we'll feel that purity of just loving ourselves just the way we are. And then maybe we get sleepy and see how easily we don't like ourselves because we're sleepy. That becomes from unconditional to conditional, like that. Never mind (laughs) not liking ourselves because of whatever. You know, it's just endless, uh, this self-hatred. So without the balance of wisdom, Love can become the opposite, hatred, ill will, fear, or it can become clinging, attached. You know when we have that sense of needing or wanting someone, and we think that's love? You know, they're they're not, (laughs) that's not this kind of love. You know those songs on the radio that, you know, it's like, oh, baby, I'll die without you, you know, it's like that, that, that's what we call love, you know, and that's, that's pretty questionable, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and we get to see that often when we're in retreat, that sense that we're going to die without it, babies will die without love, yeah, and we get to tune into how important love is. Yeah, we need it, and it can become clinging, attachment, so that we suffer. And so to be able to face our dependence and <laughs> our interdependence, you know, this is, this is incredible, the journey on a long retreat. We get to see the difference over and over again between this conditional love and unconditional love. Love purifies understanding. Um, I'll talk more about that during the talk, but just to remember that detachment can become disconnection. And one is healthy, and one is unhealthy. Now, so say fear comes up. If we connect with the fear with that kind of warmth and care, the detachment will be in balance. But if there's any kind of unhealthy disconnection, you know, we'll just avoid that experience and think maybe that we're mindful because we haven't connected with it. And the mindfulness is more like indifference or aversion.
wisdom, true wisdom, leads to a disenchantment with experience as something that will really yield a lasting happiness. But it doesn't mean that we're disconnected or that the heart is closed off from experience. There was a great blues singer, Billie Holiday, that my mother used to play all night over and over when I was a kid. And um, I mean all night. And one of my favorite songs uh, of hers, uh, there's a phrase where she sang, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Ask yourself this every day. We want so much to flow into the universe. We want to lose that sense of a separate self through the understanding of love and through the understanding of wisdom. And yet, you know, what is that, that we want to go to heaven? But what's the price? Nobody wants to die. So what does that mean, really, in terms of our experience? Well, you know, what is a separate self? And that experience of the controller, you know, the controller, the manipulator, the judge, any kind of temporary moment where we identify or believe aversion or fear, any temporary moment where we believe wanting, we're not in that place where we're willing to die. Meditating. You know, Upandita used to ask over and over, are you willing to die meditating? Martin Luther King, you know, so many examples, you know, where he would ask, you know, in Selma, Alabama, one of the first um, great speeches he gave, he asked the poorest of the poor in this church in Selma, he said, are you willing to die? for your freedom. And then he said, you know, this gives us dignity. You know, that we can share this dignity, that we have this willingness to die for our freedom. This is what we're doing here. There was a retreat I had in Wales where, uh, toward the end of it, um, on my skin, I got covered with eczema, just totally covered, and, and that's how I was born. And most of my life up through high school, I had it all over me. It was very um, tortured <laughs> in terms of how I identified what I looked like. Um, and so it coming back all over my body was so painful. And, you know, mentally, emotionally, <laughs> physically, <laughs> really painful. And the, the teacher of the retreat, had to take me to the doctor. And as we were driving out of this long um, country road, there were a few yogis that had taken a really long walk. And <laughs> in those days, this just didn't happen. And they, they were lying out in the sun, you know, by a brook. And he looked at me and he said, do they have any idea what we're doing here? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just like, there was that sense of like, do they have this understanding? Are we, are we really getting 
everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And then to really translate that into the practice of facing how and why we suffer. And what is a separate self? And do we have to kill it? <laughs> how, do we, how do we work with aversion and attachment and delusion? Through understanding, through love, through understanding, through love, not through killing aversion. We're so violent. One of the great, I think, the wonderful things about a long retreat is you really get to understand that we can do anything, that we can be anything. And so there's less and less judgment of anybody. You know, just whether it's a serial killer <laughs> or, you know, some sexual weird thing or, you know you, you know, you sit here and it's like, oh my God, you know, you just, just like, and if you haven't thought of it, I've heard it. I mean, <laughs> after teaching all these years, I don't think there's, I mean, so when somebody says something that's new, like, or surprising, it's shocking because, you know, it's just like we... We just have it all go through the mind. If we haven't done it, we did it 10 years ago. I mean, or 10 lifetimes ago. It's, or t you know, we really don't get that we were all, you know, mothers, fathers, frogs, you know, trees. You know, I mean, it's just like, it's funny. Can we accept that? <laughs> it leads to so much compassion. And then when you have these weird thoughts, you know when you're sleepy and you're sitting here and you have that thought like, where did that come from? You know, or you have these dreams that, you know, where do these images come from? You know, we've never been there. <laughs> How did they happen? Where did they come from? And it's amazing. And are we interested in that? instead of aversive. So if our deepest aspiration is to be free, then the deepest aspiration will simply be that we want to be free from believing in wanting. Not We don't have to get rid of wanting. We want to be free from believing it. Or we want to be free from aversion or fear, we don't have to get rid of it. We need to be free from believing those thoughts. Not, we don't have to get rid of the actual experience. And the great paradox of life is really learning how to be deeply connected with our experience, but also to be detached in a healthy way. You know, each day, each moment with each other. You know, as we learn to do this, we're really able to let our moment-to-moment -moment experience, which is the universe, touch us more deeply and touch us more deeply, you know, so that that love and wisdom will just start growing and the, the love and the wisdom will start melting into each other with each moment of awareness. So there isn't that sense that the love and wisdom are so separate. The awareness is warm. And you know the difference. You know the difference when the observation is just this kind of cold observation of our experience. 
with, w- rather than this kind of warm awareness. That's when the love and the wisdom start to come together. And we truly connect with the breath, and we don't take it personally. So we have that relationship of wisdom and love with the breath, or wisdom or love with the sound, wisdom and love with fear, or whatever. You know, this is the practice. So wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Um, you know, that, that we talk about a lot, this insight into anatta. Um, I like to go to movies, um, and I used to really like to go to a movie because I used to help, it used to help me understand anatta. So humor me and listen to why that's so much fun. You know, it's like when we're sitting here in the hall or walking, you know how we just get totally lost in our own movie. You know, it's amazing. It's just like it goes on and on and on and on. I mean, our movie never stops. The Buddha called sleep the world's greatest pleasure. Why? I mean, it's like, oh. It's like the movie stops and then the dreams come and it's like this universal movie. (laughs) It's not just so personal. It's a more archetypal movie. It doesn't stop. That's why we're practicing. Um, And so when I I first started to get a sense of anatta and I'd go to a movie, I would get that sense of, yeah, you know, we watch the screen. There's something projected onto it. You know, that's our mind. But if you start meditating and you start asking your, you know, the question, well, what is the mind? What is this movie? Now, that's like turning around in the movie theater and looking at the projector. It's like, how is this happening? This is the investigation into anatta. This is, this is mindfulness practice. And then if you get really quiet and still, you can look at the film in the projector. And if you look closely, it's really one picture, and then it's over. And then it's another picture, and then it's over. That's the birth and death of consciousness. One moment of sound, one moment of sight, one of thought. That's like a frame in the projector. And then that person there, you know, plays it at a certain speed, and we watch it. And it's completely enchanting, yeah. And that's how, that's how we are. That's the human world. We're in our movie because we don't question it. And in that, that questioning is really, why are we taking this so personally? You know, so believing I am my thoughts, I am my body, I am my emotions, all of that is that not really questioning how is this movie happening? Upandita described this, you know, in a very simple way that it takes three things for consciousness to happen. And he called it striker, receptor, and ignition. So receptor is any of the sense bases. So, for example, receptor is the ear. And striker is the sound. That's like you strike the match on the matchbox. Yeah? Strike a receptor sound, shoot, hearing consciousness. 
And those all three happen in one mind moment. So it's not like there's one (laughs) moment and then another moment and another moment. All three of those are necessary for consciousness to happen. And it's the same with sight or taste or touch. The mind, you can think of the mind like an organ at the heart. And you know, it's really interesting with thought for us because we tend to not really think of freedom as getting rid of sounds or getting rid of sights. But when it comes to thinking, we tend to think that thinking should disappear. But if you thought of thinking as an organ, like the heart is like an organ, you wouldn't tend to think that somehow we should all have this, what? Cut out your heart, cut out your brain, so that you can be liberated? Really question this. We have this some strange idea that we should be getting rid of the thinking versus getting quiet enough to see it clearly. We don't have to get rid of hearing. We don't have to get rid of emotion. We don't have to get rid of anything to be liberated. And that's really the dignity. That's really the dignity that Martin Luther King was talking about. How do you get free as a human being? You face the violence. So hopefully you're facing more and more inner violence. The more peace that you experience, the more you're going to get to face the aversion and attachment. You know, the purer it gets, the longer the purity lasts, then the deeper roots of the violence will appear. And that's good practice. It's really good practice. So what we see from starting to understand striker receptor ignition or the frame by frame in the movie theater is really that when you look at any moment, whether it's a thought, a sound, a taste, uh, it's insubstantial. It's disappearing. There's a Sayadaw in Burma named Sayadaw Ukundala, and his instructions start by looking at things disappearing. So his instruction with the breath is to only notice it disappear. Don't notice it appear. With a step, he only wants you to see the ending of the step. He only wants you to see the ending of a thought. He only wants you to see the ending of the (laughs) emotion. It's very interesting instruction. Because if one can do it, one starts to tune in already to how everything's moving so quickly. It's disappearing. It's disappearing. It's that insubstantial. It's amazing. And we tend, again, we tend to not like this very much. You know, so insight into dukkha, meaning, you know, that things are unreliable, that we're getting the sense of change, A lot of you are having that insight, but we have aversion to it, and we don't always recognize it. And it's so sad uh, for me as a teacher. It's just I want you to be able to see that so much. It's like we, we, we tend to get it, but then we just shy away from it because we don't really like it, and we mistake. We don't think we're having aversion. I mean, yeah, we don't think we're having aversion. We don't know we had an insight. 
So check it out. Check it out. Check out what I'm saying. It's, it's important. We get caught in identification. We get caught in that sense of security we get because it's just a habitual learned defense. You know, and we've talked about it a lot, but it, this takes a tremendous amount of compassion, a tremendous amount of love for us to get that all a moment of separate self is, is just this tightening, right in the heart, right in the mind. It's just like this, it's either a no, <laughs> no, or it's like, I want that. You know, it's like, and we think it's outside of ourselves. Um, and often it's because we don't want to kind of drop into the sense of groundlessness, the inevitability of the unknown, again, which is there all the time. We sort of prefer this pain of security, of identification, rather than just that, <gasps> the suchness of things. For example, self-hatred. It's a defense. It will feel better and more familiar than groundlessness. And that's why we get so caught in it. And it takes a tremendous amount of love for ourselves and compassion to realize that that feels safer, <laughs> which, you know, it's a, it's a miserable, rotten, torturous time, right, when we're hating ourselves. But, you know, it's like there's a sense of separate self there. We feel like we're there. And it's a cover for that just intense dukkha or vulnerability that we never know what's going to happen. You know, so this, this, this is where this gets really interesting. What do we do? What do we do there? And this is where metta is so important, because metta, or love, is what holds us. It's the container for the groundlessness. It's the container for the emptiness. There have been a lot of studies of babies and mothers, you know, just infants being born. You know, and it's like what they're <laughs> realizing is that there will always be a disconnection between the mother and the infant, you know, over and over. You know, mother has to go to the bathroom to take a shower. There'll be these moments where there's this separation. But what they've studied is what's so important is that the, is the healing of the connection. It's like healing the disconnect, healing the disconnect, that, that mo the moment of connection again is so important. And so in this practice, if we feel that kind of bottom drop out or we get really afraid of the emptiness, we really need the metta. This is not a failure. This is not going back to first grade and feeling like we're in sixth grade. You know, it's not going to some kind of backwards place. If we get afraid, often we're moving onward. 
you know, we've touched into this kind of sense of insecurity and groundlessness, and we, we grab on. And then it will take this just kind of connecting with ourselves so that we don't leave or disappear. What we most fear is not the groundlessness, it's the disappearing. It's having to leave to survive, to leave to be here. And so I can't emphasize enough when we start to feel shaky, it's that taking that wise, loving self to be with that scared little part and we just bring them together. That's concentration. It's that simple, but it's hard to remember to do. And the more that we didn't learn how to hold ourselves through whatever, if you didn't learn to hold yourself through, I have millions of them. <laughs> Loneliness, you know, self-hatred, you know, unlovel- fear of unlovability, unlovability. Let's go on. We can name millions of them, yeah? Where we, where we disconnect from ourselves, that unhealthy detachment. And then we, c- we can't be in the present. And that's usually when you feel like nothing's working. You know that feeling when you think, well, I, you know, I fast walked, I slow walked, I had a cup of tea, (laughs) I skipped two sittings, you know, and you still feel like, whoa, you know, you're in really identified with something. It's usually because we haven't learned to hold ourselves through that experience yet. You know, so we get lost in it, and eventually, you know, sometimes it takes a really long time. You know, we get, oh, I mean, I can't tell you how long it took me to be able to say, oh, I'm afraid. Sometimes it would take me nine hours on a retreat to go, oh, you know, I might be having this fear attack, you know, or or some planning thing. You know, just, yeah, you know how you just get over and over, you get caught in something, and it's so painful, and it's so obsessive, but you can't do that. You can't go, oh, I'm afraid. It's the moment when you can go, oh, whatever, that there's that reconnection with ourselves, and we've healed that moment that the disconnect is healed. And that's a lot of the practice. One of the places that I used to watch that a lot when I, you know, if at least the way I was born as an Irish Catholic, you know, we were born guilty, (laughs) and uh, (laughs) it's just the way it is, right? Uh, And when I would notice that no matter how long I slept, I could sleep twelve hours. I experimented on a retreat. You know, I slept one hour, ten hours, two hours, five hours, twelve hours. 14 hours. You know, I tried to see how many hours I would sleep and not feel guilty. I always felt every, like the bell would ring or my alarm would go off and I would feel like immediate sense of guilt. Um, And it was just an incredible teaching. Like, I just fought it and fought it and fought it and I kept trying to manipulate it and manipulate it till finally it was like, duh, you know, it's like maybe I should try experimenting with, you know, I mean, experiencing this and connecting with it, knowing what, exploring it, knowing what it feels like, learning not to take it so personally. And after some time with that, 
I woke up with something very different. I don't want to be here. Depression. And I fought that, and I fought it, and I fought it. You know, and it was a much harder experience for me to connect with. And I had to, like, learn to go outside and feed the chipmunks, you know, have some caffeine. Well, maybe I want to show up for this, you know. But it's just that's my conditioning, is when I wake up, this is what happens. And over time, but this took years for me, actually, was to start to say, oh, this is, this is like, I'm okay for waking up like this. And maybe I can connect with this experience. It took so much metta and so much mindfulness. Now, for you, it might be something different. You might be one of those people that, like, wake up and go, oh, boy, another day. You know, and just like, <laughs> I can't wait, you know. <laughs> I'm not one of those. Um <laughs> But I bet somewhere down the road, you'll hit something like a VR, for example. You know, one, one time when I was practicing, I didn't hit VR territory for many years. I'm such a fear hider type. Um, in one retreat, I was kind of very secluded and going along, minding my own business. And I noticed this yogi that was really mindful, you know, and really slow. And you know, you know those first moments where you just kind of peek, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then you start knowing when they might show up for lunch, and you start planning. You don't, you know, you try not to plan it, but somehow you're there, you know, when they're there. And uh, I would start thinking, well, this is helping my practice. You know, I just rationalized it because this person was so mindful, and I thought he's helping my practice. You know, so I would like try to walk by him and, you know, and then, you know, he'd be walking so slowly and I'd walk by, it would be like, <sighs> you know, and it's like, <sighs> you know, and then it's like, boy, this is great. This is so mindful. We're both being so mindful. <laughs> you know, and it's like, swoon, you know, just, you know, uh, yeah, you know, and after a couple days, it's like, maybe this is attachment. <laughs> and it was so easily fooled myself, and I'd worked so much with guilt, loneliness, self-hatred, you know, I'd never worked with desire, like it didn't even come up for s many years, and it was much harder for me to work with it, because I just didn't have that experience. It was really interesting. So, it was just wanting. You know, each time that we get into this stuff and we feel like we're getting caught, eventually I had to see that the wanting was okay. The attraction was okay. In fact, we're doing it a lot, right? We're judging and we're aversive or we're, it's pleasant. We get attracted. And equanimity is learning how to experience the reaction in a smooth way. It's like the wanting just comes through. And we don't, we don't have to feel like we have to get rid of it. We just see it clearly. It comes and goes like the sound of a bird. And when it's sticky, when we believe it, we suffer. And that's why we're here. It's like that's how we get liberated. 
you know, when you feel like you've really succeeded. You know, somebody came in the other day and it was like describing, you know, a strong identification with something and then, you know, seeing it clearly, you know, and it was like she said, it's Dharma thrill. You know, you know, it's like, you know how quiet it is here and, you know, what it, what is, what, what really thrills us? Well, what, what do we have that thrills us besides dessert, you know, or a good vegetable? <laughs> Brussels sprouts, oh boy, you know. <laughs> well, you know, it's like when we see something clearly and, you know, don't take it personally, when we have this balance, when we have the connection and we don't take it personally, this is that freedom that we aspire so deeply for and that we work so hard for. This doesn't come easy. And that it's so wonderful, it feels so good, that then when we wake up and it's like, oh, you know, we're motivated. This is a um, few sentences from, from a description of what um, Federico Garcia Lorca um, felt was a great poet. And I tell you that you should open yourselves to hearing an authentic poet of the kind whose bodily senses were shaped in a world that is not our own, and that few people are able to perceive. A poet closer to death than to philosophy, closer to pain than to intelligence, closer to blood than to ink. And I really see this as what a yogi is. A yogi is closer to death than to philosophy. A yogi is closer to pain than to intelligence. A yogi is closer to blood than to ink. My great-niece, Brenna, um, has been teaching me a lot about my own um, heritage and kind of generational uh, aspects of being in prison. And one of them is this inability to know how to work with anger skillfully. so that when she and I on the driveway um, 
this past year as she drew this picture of herself and then had the face that um, had all these teeth in it. She took chalk and she made all these teeth for a mouth. And then I put some hair and eyes on it and um, I said, who is this? And she didn't say her name. She said this next door neighbor's name. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, well, you know, that's interesting. So I said, well, why don't we make a picture of you? And so she laid down again. I drew an outline of her and had the chalk and did her hair and some clothes. And she, she did one, t one tooth. It was so interesting. All the teeth was one kind of picture, the neighbor, who it turns out, that's the angry face, right? And then her, the, the happy face was this one little, <laughs> little teeny tooth. And I said, well, who's that? And she said, well, that's me, and I'm happy. And so we were looking at them, and her mom came out of the house. And my niece went bonkers. Like, it was just like a cartoon. She's like, ah! <laughs> hide the face of the neighbor, you know. <laughs> she just like freaked out and I'm like, okay, you know, and I <laughs> okay, okay, you know, and <laughs> I like got some stuff and I like, I took my like sweater and I just rubbed the face so that it was all rubbing so you couldn't see anything. It was all just, you know, and her mother noticed, of course, that there was this major like drama going on <laughs> and she's like, what's going on? And and it's like, nothing, <laughs> everything's fine. You know, and it took me a long time to just absorb even. She just could not handle that her mother could even see a face that would be angry. And then she felt safe with me seeing it, but it wasn't her, right? It's the neighbor. You know, that was hysterically funny, you know, but this is my heritage, right? And that's like, She's got the generation that has hope, you know. <laughs> she's two generations away from me. She's got, you know, she's got hope. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> in terms of anger, you know, in terms of this, what I'm teaching, love and detachment. Okay, so anger comes up. If we detach too quickly, it'll usually mean we've repressed it. If we're afraid of the story, and there's been a lot of denial with something, we'll tend to repress it. You know, so this is, this is difficult. Um, we might need to not look at the story, feel the feelings, but what if it comes back, the story comes back, the story comes back, the story comes back. Usually that means we need to open to the experience of anger, and there's probably some repression or denial. Um, and if we connect to the story and we don't have enough detachment, what happens? We drown. You know, so of course we have to learn how to detach enough and disconnect enough to see it clearly. But then, you know, then we start learning this balance. Okay, I have to let the story in a little to even feel it. And then we get writer and writer and writer. Yeah, I mean, anger is great. You know, it can feel so pleasurable to be so right. I mean, I at least find, you know, that then again, there's that security of feeling right. 
versus the groundlessness of just being interested in the suffering. Usually when we're angry at somebody, it's hard to be interested in their suffering. You know, so again, it's like we have this balance of sort of being able to detach enough in a healthy way to be interested, to feel the body, to let the story come and go without taking it personally. If something's really repressed, usually we have to believe the story. It's almost like, for me, there was so much denial about so much in my early childhood. The story had to come first because there was a lot of denial, and then I could let it go. For other people, they know the story so well, or, you know, there's plenty of times when I know the story so well. It doesn't help. It's just this endless movie that you're caught in, and it's just, it's not going to go anywhere unless one actually can feel it on a deeper level that it's simply wanting, that it's simply not wanting. That's what it usually, any suffering that we're experiencing, the good news is that it boils down to those two. It's that simple. Whenever you're suffering, all you have to ask yourself is, is this, is this clinging or craving or attachment, or is this not wanting? Wanting, not wanting, and not to judge it, to see if one can allow it, let it come and go with this balance of connection, care, and detachment. When we have that kind of purity where we um, can really care, see clearly, let things come and go, you know, there's a real gratitude that appears. There's this joy of intimacy with life itself, so that we become less and less afraid of who we are, the movie we're in, the movie other people are in. It's like there's more and more freedom and choice to explore how it is, to learn. I had a, a student in Hawaii, who, um, in her meditative life, connected with me fairly late in her meditative life and had done another style of practice for many, many years, which had the wisdom side in it, but it didn't have the love side in it. And, and she'd practice, she was my age, so she'd practice maybe 25 years before she met me. And, um, it was like that cold observation and the feeling that she hadn't progressed in her practice was very strong. Um, and she felt like this failure after all those years. And um, it just, it was so painful for me as her teacher to see that getting caught in that loop of judgment and perfectionism and feeling like she was a failure. Um, and she had two children, and a great. She was a physician, a great job, and lovely person, and um, just lovely. And she got pancreatic cancer, um, so it was like this shock. Um, 
And I went to visit her a few times. She was on another island. And I think the day, was it the day she died? Yeah. Um, she, I went to see her, and she was going through this thing again, that it was like all that judgment <laughs> after all these years of practice um, and feeling like she'd failed at the practice and she was about to die, and I just started crying. It was just unbearable. I couldn't bear it. Um, and I said, we have got to get to the, the, whatever this is, you know, this is like so critical. And I just, this is not, this is not the truth. This is not the practice. And I said, what do you, can you think of anything that could be like doing this? And she said, well, you know, I don't remember that my mother ever told me that she loved me. And she'd never told me that. She never told anybody that. She was like this perfectly lovable, you know, being. You know, everyone loved her. Her funeral, it was like in Hawaii for this many local people to come out. Like she was just this beloved doctor in this community. Um, And yet she had no sense of lovableness herself. You know, and I just, I don't think that's, the practice. You know, I think we can see that wisdom tells us we're nothing till we're blue in the face, but if there isn't enough of a container to hold it, you know, it's not going to be in balance. You know, so really, you know, and she told me that, and I just, like, again, I started crying, and I said, I really love you. And, you know, it's like we connected, and she died, you know, And it was just like such a powerful experience because I felt that she really received it. She received that for the first time and could feel it for herself. If we don't have that sense, we can't really drop into the emptiness. It's like we're too afraid because that emptiness will feel like the annihilation of not being lovable. And that's not what emptiness is. When, when we understand that nothing is worth holding on to, it only means that things are insubstantial. The eye still receives forms. The heart still receives thoughts and emotion. The ear still receives sounds. Realization doesn't annihilate anything. But not feeling loved annihilates. And so that we have to remember that these are really important truths, that the truth of being lovable and loving and the truth of wisdom tells me of nothing, they both can go along in a very complementary way. Sometimes we'll be doing different practices. I did mindfulness practice for many years, and loving kindness um, was too hard for me. I just avoided it like the plague. You know, I just, I couldn't do it. Um, And after many years, I would see that the metta would just come into the practice of mindfulness. You know, I didn't have to make it happen. I didn't have to say the words. It just started to happen naturally. And then at a certain point from that happening naturally, I started to be able to um, 
push it, <laughs> you know, do a little more, keep the fire going a little more, do it a little more. And what I was afraid to feel was the unlovability. That's what started to come up when I did the practice. And it's great. So if you get to s- experience unlovability, how wonderful. That's how you learn to love yourself. And you know that every being who takes birth is afraid of that. You know, all of us want love. All of the devas, all of the beings in the hell realms. We all need love. And we all need wisdom. I have this very long story to read. But it's so good. I'm almost going to read it. Yeah, why not? Okay. It's called Bird. It's a new one by Mary Oliver. And um, it's, uh, I think it's about love and wisdom. On a December morning two years ago, I brought a young, injured, black-backed gull home from the beach. It was, in fact, Christmas morning, as well as bitter cold, which may account for my act. Injured gulls are common. Nature's ma receives them again implacably. Almost never is a rescue justified by a return to health and freedom. And this gull was close to that deep ma. It made no protest when I picked it up. The eyes were half shut, the body so starved it seemed to hold nothing but air. A bathtub is a convenient and cool place in which to put an injured bird. And there this bird lay on its side through the rest of the day. But the next morning its eyes were open and it sat. Though clumsily erect, it lifted its head and drank from a cup of water. Little sips. It was a shattered elegance, grossly injured the outer bone of one wing broken, the other wing injured as well. Our guess was that it had become hurt and unable to fly, and on the beach had been mauled by a dog or coyote. In the language of the day, it was bankrupt. But the following morning it accepted food, a few small pieces of fresh cod. Food gave it strength, and it rapidly became in spite of its injuries, almost jaunty. The neck and breast muscles were strong, the eye bright and clear. M and I talked to it. It looked at us directly. It showed neither fear nor aggression, and we sensed quickly that it did not like to be alone. We set up a site with a padding of towels and paper towels just inside a glass door that overlooks our deck and the harbor. It was apparent that the gull was also leg-injured. It stood, but could not walk. In the first days, one pink foot turned black and withered. Later, the remaining foot would do the same. When that happened, we built up the perch to compensate that he might still see outside. At the end of the day, when it grew dark, we turned him around to face the room that he might be part of the evening circle. He loved the light. 
In the morning when I came downstairs in the half dark, he was eager for me to lift the shade and turn him around so he could begin looking. He would swing his head slowly from east to west and back again, gazing slowly and deeply. During the colorful winter sunsets, the descent of the light, he also turned his attention entirely from us and into the world. To understand this, you must know that at other times he was greatly interested in us and watched whatever we did with gorgeous curiosity. One morning I dropped next to him by accident a sheet of holiday wrapping paper and I very soon saw him pecking at it. Diligently and persistently he was trying to remove Santa Claus's hat <laughs> from the Santa figure on the paper. After that we invented games. I drew pictures of fish, of worms, of leggy spiders, of hot dogs which he would picket with a particularly gleeful intent. Since he was not hungry, his failure to lift the image seemed not to frustrate but to amuse him. We added feather tossing, using crowed feathers. I tossed by hand, he with his enormous deft beak. We kept within his reach a bowl of sand and another of water, and began more nonsense. I would fling the water around with my finger, and he again would follow with that spirited beak, dashing the water from the bowl, making it fly in all directions. His eyes sparkled. This is my favorite part. <laughs> we gave him a stuffed toy, a lion, as it happened, and he would peck the lion's red nose very gently and lean against him while he slept. <laughs> and we had other moments of exhilaration and fun. Every morning we filled the bathtub and he took boisterous baths, dipping his speckled head and beating the water as well as he could, his shoulders shaking and his wings partially opening. Then on an island of towels in the morning sun, he would slowly and assiduously groom himself on a few windless days, he sat out on the deck outside, a place safe from trouble and full of brightness. When we carried him there, he would croak with excitement. But no matter how hard I try to tell this story, it's not like it was. He was a small life, but elegant, courteous, patient, responsive, as well as very injured. And there is this certainty about muscles. They need to be exercised. And this was an enterprise in which he could no longer, to any useful extent, engage. At the same time he was gaining in attentiveness and eating more than sufficiently, he was growing weaker. The wing wound had dried, but the second foot had now begun to wither. He shook his shoulders less and less during his bath. The neck was still, still strong, the head lightly uplifted and arched, quick and nimble. He was no less ready to play. But always he was a little weaker, and so he was in an impossible place, and we were more and more in a difficult place. <laughs> 
how do I say it? We grew fond. We grew into that perilous place. We grew fond. We tried to kill him with sleeping pills, but he only slept for a long time. (laughs) Many hours, and then he woke with his usual brightness. We decided nature knows best and carried him back to the water and let him go, drifting, but he sank. So we waded out and got hold of him, all of us dripping wet as we carried him back inside. January passed. As we entered February, he ate voraciously, (laughs) made a hundred messes on well-placed paper towels or somewhere near them. By that time, he knew the routines of the day and expressed vigorous excitement toward the satisfaction of his anticipation. We had a storm from the southeast, and I found along the shore a feast of soft-shelled clams. He ate until his eyes filled with sleep. The broken part of the wing hung now by a single tendon. We clipped it away. One withered foot literally fell from him along with the first section of leg bone. So he was a one-winged, one-legged gull, but still patient, attentive. And he had visitors. He liked to have his head touched, his feathers roughed up a little, and then smoothed. Sometimes a two-legged gull can do something a two-legged gull can do for himself. He would sport with his water bowl. He would open the great beak for a feather, then fling it across the floor. He liked applause. Was he in pain? Our own doctor, who came to see him often, (laughs) did not think so. Did we do right or wrong to lengthen his days? Even now we do not know. Sometimes he was restless, Then I would take him with me into the room where I write and play music. Schubert, Mahler, Brahms. Soon he would become quiet and dipping his head would retire into the private chamber of himself. But the rough and tumble work of dying was going on even in the quiet body. The middle of February passed. When I picked him up, the muscles along the breast were so thin I feared for the tender skin lying across the crest of the bone. And still the eyes were full of the spices of amusement. He was, of course, a piece of the sky. His eyes said so. This is not fact. This is the other part of knowing something when there is no proof, but neither is there any way toward disbelief. Imagine lifting the lid from a jar and finding it filled not with darkness, but with light. Bird was like that, startling, elegant, alive. But the day we knew must come did at last, and then the non-responsiveness of his eyes was terrible. It was late February when I came downstairs, as usual, before dawn then returned upstairs to M. The sweep and play of the morning was just beginning, its tender colors reaching everywhere. 
The little gull has died, I said to M as I lifted the shades to the morning light. The, inevitab the inevitability of love, the inevitability of groundlessness. Let's sit for a minute. May we learn to deeply value love and emptiness, connection and detachment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.